As Nita said a moment ago, we are starting a new series this morning, a Lenten sermon series uh, that I'm calling The Way. We're going to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, some of you may remember that, uh, that this spring, in fact, in just a couple of weeks uh, from now, I was supposed to be leading a group of about 60 from our congregation to the Holy Land. Uh, to actually walk in the places where Jesus walked and to, to see some of those places and to experience that. Given uh, what's going on these days in Israel and in Gaza, obviously uh, that trip has been postponed uh, indefinitely at this point. I hope that in uh, the days and years ahead that we will be able to make a trip like that. Uh, but instead, uh, we're all going to go uh, without actually going. Uh, what we're going to do over the next six weeks is to focus on the life and the teachings of Jesus and to retrace the footsteps of Jesus from his baptism all the way uh, through the heart of his ministry into the last days of his life and his death until we get to the resurrection. And my hope is, my hope is that we will along the way hear some of those familiar stories that we have been hearing, some of us our entire lives uh, and to hear them in new ways, we draw upon some of the, uh, the insights of history, uh, of archaeology and geography from that holy land, uh, and to look at not just the way things were, but also the way things are, and in hopes of the way that things could be. Now, Lent uh, is the sacred season that for thousands of years, people of faith has been using as a time of deep introspection and growth, uh, of asking ourselves the hardest questions we can uh, about what it means to be a person of faith, what it means uh, to, to become even more like the people that God created us to be. And so over the next six weeks, uh, we will be taking the time to carefully look at the ways in which perhaps we have strayed from the path that we have been invited to follow. And the truth is, is that all honest and thoughtful people, uh, if we are honest, recognize that there are times when we stray, that we stray from the path that God has set before us. And some might even say that the arc of the biblical story is the repetition that over and over and over again, humanity continues to stray and God continues to nudge and to lead us back now, what is this path that we are sent to follow, that we sometimes stray from? Jesus himself told us. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So this path that we are set to follow is the way of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his baptism, and the first 40 days following that, that he spent fasting in the wilderness during which he was tempted and tested. And the text that we're going to be reading from is from the Gospel of Mark. Now, we have uh, four accounts, four stories of the life and ministry of Jesus. We call them Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and Mark is the earliest. It's also the shortest. Uh, it, there's not a lot of detail in Mark. Some people love that, some people don't. Uh, there's not a lot of dancing around. Mark has a tendency to get straight to the point. In fact, one of the most common words that Mark uses again and again, it's even in the text that you're about to hear this morning, is the word immediately. There is this sense of urgency as if Mark wants to know, what about you? 
What about you? Do you get it? Do you see why Jesus came into the world? Or are you stuck just like the disciples, unable to see the love and the grace, the hope and the joy, the challenge and the character that Jesus offers and brings to us? So the text today that you're about to hear is the very beginning of the gospel. In fact, we start just nine verses into the story at the beginning of his public ministry. Now, what you will notice is that in those eight verses before that what we read, there's no mention at all of any birth story. There's no, uh, there's no angels, there's no barn, there's no nothing. It starts, it starts with the baptism of Jesus. And so I invite you to hear this word that comes to us from Mark's gospel. Our scripture today comes from the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, 9 through 13. Herein lies the reading. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of, Jordan, of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, the heavens opened, and the Spirit, like a dove, descending. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. So do you see what I say about that urgency? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth when he was baptized by John. Well, there's some questions in that, right? In those days. Well, what days? Came to John. Well, who's John? We're not told any of that. He's quick to the point. There's not a lot of fluff. Yet, I would also argue that Mark has the ability to say a lot in just a few short words. Something that I am sure many of you wish that I was able to do on a regular basis, to say a lot in a very short amount of time, speak up, and then shut up. That's what you wish that I would do. So when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, it's important for us to remember that that would not have been an unordinary occurrence, that this type of ritual cleansing for purification, that this, this was a common practice among Jews in that first century. In fact, the idea of using water as a sign of, of, of cleansing, of also using God's uh, work in forgiveness, dated back hundreds of years. In fact, the law of Moses, all the way back in the Hebrew Scriptures, prescribed the use of water for this very same purpose, either by sprinkling or by immersion. And so by the first century, there were these baths that were used by Jews throughout the Holy Land that were used for this cleansing, and they would uh, be cleansed after childbirth or after a menstrual cycle in the midst of some sort of conversion experience that over and over again that they would be cleansed as they prepared to go into, for instance, the temple courts. And this was more than just a simple rinsing off of the dirt of the body to get rid of the stink and the smell and the dirt, but also as a way of expressing this desire to be clean before God experiencing a cleansing, a wholeness that comes from God. Now, the actual bath itself in Hebrew is called a mikvahot. 
And if you were to go to the Holy Land today, as we were supposed to in just a few short weeks, you would see the ruins of these mikvahs all over. And these washing and these baths is the pre-Christian origin of baptism. And oftentimes these baths have two sets of stairs, and one that would enter the water, and you would come in as an unclean person, and then you would walk out on the other side using a separate set of stairs that was reserved only for the clean people. And this form of baptism was not, used, not only used uh, when, when someone wanted that ritual cleansing, but also as a time, a time when someone would be converted to Judaism as a way of signifying this new birth that would come up out of the water a new person, born anew. Sometimes you would use these mikvah oats, and sometimes you would simply do it in the Jordan River. And so while Jesus' baptism by John would not have been out of the ordinary, it was at the time, in the same way it is even today, to some, some, somewhat unsettling. Somewhat unsettling, because they wondered, just as modern-day disciples do, why would someone who knew no sin, as we often say about Jesus, someone who was pure and clean, why would he receive a baptism that indicated this repentance, this turning away from sin, this fresh start? Someone who didn't need a fresh start, who had never committed sin, why would he need to be baptized? Even John himself in Matthew and Luke's gospel says, wait a minute, wait a minute, why should I baptize you? You should be baptizing me. So why would Jesus, someone pure and holy, Someone without sin need to be baptized as a sign of forgiveness and repentance, this desire to be made clean. Years and years ago, when I was a student across the street at TCU, one of my part-time jobs for a, a number of months was to work in an adolescent unit of a psychiatric hospital here in Fort Worth. And there were young people in that unit there for a number of different reasons, some of which had to do with addiction issues. And so part of my responsibility was to take these young people and I would put them in a van and I would load them up and we would drive to a number of different addiction anonymous groups, whether it be AA or NA groups around the city. And I was required, uh, I was required in those times uh, to stay with them in the meetings just to make sure that they wouldn't wander off to use the bathroom and then, you know, get themselves into trouble. And so it was my responsibility to make sure that I stayed with them. And as embarrassed as I am to say this now, at the time, I still remember, I still remember that feeling of being very aware, sitting in this room of people that I didn't know, that I didn't want them to think that I was there for me that I had to fight the urge to stand up and say, you know what, I just brought them. I'm the van driver. I, I, I have no addiction problem. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm here for them. But Jesus was different. Jesus was different. He didn't have to fight that urge. He wasn't embarrassed to identify with people who had wandered off the path, who had lost their way. You see, I think it was Jesus who waded into the waters of baptism as a way of saying, I'm with them. I'm not just driving the van. I'm with them. He didn't announce, I don't really need this. This is for you. 
Instead, he walked in those waters for us and with us. As a way of saying, we are all in this together. And in the days and weeks ahead, that he would eat with sinners and tax collectors. He would befriend prostitutes and adulterers. In many ways, this was his mission. This is what his ministry was all about. And so in his baptism, Jesus identified with those who get lost along the way, who wander off the path, who seek to find a better way. He identified with them. He said, I'm with them. We're all in this together. Now, many of you know that I'm originally from Northern California, and so I am a huge San Francisco 49er fan. So I want to talk for just a minute, not about the Super Bowl, because it's still too painful and raw, (laughs) but I do want to talk about the Super Bowl commercials. Does that sound okay? Can we talk about that? That's a little safer for me. There were two commercials last week that perhaps you saw that have garnered the most attention and the most discussion in the last week, and they were both having to do with Jesus. One of them involved a number of people washing feet, and another one showed a number of different people, and the question at the end asked, who is your neighbor? And there was a lot of controversy this week. If you followed any of it, you know that there was a lot of questioning around the motives and the politics around the people who funded those, that campaign, and wondering and questioning whether or not the millions and millions of dollars that they spent on that would have been better used to do something else a little more tangible, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house those who are homeless. But I'm not going to talk about any of that. I'm not going to question their motives. I'm just going to simply say the message was solid. And the message was he gets us. He understands. He's been there. He understands our struggles and our shortcomings, the way that we tend to wander from the path. He gets us, and he is with us in that struggle. Now, the story goes on that as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn apart, and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and there is this voice that speaks audibly and says, You are my son, the beloved With you, I am well pleased. Now, in some of the other Gospels, it's slightly different. In Luke's Gospel, for instance, it says, this is my son, as if everyone who was there on that day heard this voice. But here in Mark, only Jesus hears the voice. You are my beloved. It's personal. You are my beloved, and with you, I am well pleased. Maybe you could say it this way, that that for Jesus, his baptism was a defining act in his life. Because in that moment, he, he not only identified with the sinners, but he also heard God's affirmation that he was a beloved child of God. And in that moment, he received the Spirit's power, marked the beginning of his ministry, showed that he was set apart to do good things, to to fulfill his mission, to draw people together, to draw people to God, to invite them into a closer relationship with the divine, demonstrating that God's extravagant love was for everybody, not just those who knew the right answers, who lived the right way, but for everyone. And I would argue that for us, baptism is that defining moment as well. 
that through our own baptism, that we are claimed by God, that we are anointed by a spirit, that we are set aside and said, you have a special role to play. You are to be a part of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the spirit of God resides in you. You are my beloved child. And in you, I am well pleased. Martin Luther was a German theologian way back in the 16th century, and he was a central figure in the Protestant Reformation, and and in many ways his beliefs would be the basis of the Lutheran church, hence the name, and it was said that he struggled quite a bit with bouts of depression, that he would get deeply down from time to time, and when that would happen, that he would always do the same thing. He would go back and stand in front of a mirror, and he would say to himself, giving himself a little bit of a pep talk, he'd say, Martin Luther, you are baptized. And don't you forget it. You are baptized. In other words, it's a reminder to him that he is set apart, that he is beloved, that he is chosen, that he is loved by God, not for what he does but simply for who he was. In moments when you find yourself struggling, down, wondering if you are enough, my hope and my prayer is that you will give yourself that same pep talk, that you will remember your own baptism, you will remember that you are God's beloved, that you are chosen, that you are set apart, that you are loved, that you are enough. Well, immediately after his baptism, and there's that word that I mentioned a moment ago, what must have been one of the most spiritually significant moments of his life, immediately he's led, he's driven by God into the wilderness where he would fast for 40 days and 40 nights. As I pointed out earlier, this season of Lent is a 40-day period, not including Sundays, that emulates that time in his life. That ministry of Jesus, that time, uh, it is a time for us to fast, which is part of the reason that we give things up for Lent. We fast from those things, a time to draw ourselves more closely to God, to recall our brokenness, our own temptations, our own struggle, our own need for grace and for healing. It's a time when we ask ourselves the hardest questions that we ask, questions like, do we get it? Do we see why Jesus came to the world? Or are we stuck just like the disciples, unable to see the love and the grace, the hope and the joy, the challenge and the character that Jesus brings and offers us in our lives? Now, if we were to retrace his footsteps, we'd see that he left the Jordan River and he hiked about five miles due west across a flat desert that was simply dotted with shrub brush There's not a lot to see between Jordan and the mountains of the wilderness. But then just past Jericho, sort of like on the the east coast of Colorado, there's all the flatland, then all of a sudden the Rocky Mountains shoot up out of the the flats. And there it is, just north of Jericho. There is this rugged, barren mountain that is known today as Mount Quatral, Carantual. I said that wrong twice in a row. The third time I'm going to get it. Mount Quarantal, I said it right that time. Quarantal means 40. 
And the mountain is so named because it was believed that that's where Jesus spent his 40 days of temptation. And oftentimes that is now referred to as the Mount of Temptation. And it is breathtakingly beautiful, and it looks a lot like the badlands of South Dakota or the desert southwest. And halfway up the mount is this large cave that is easily seen from the base of the mountain. And the tradition that goes back at least to the 300s is that that is the cave where Jesus slept, where he spent that 40 days and 40 nights wrestling and tempting. And today there is around that a monastery simply known as the Monastery of the Temptation, and it clings to the mountain around the cave, and you can walk there. And you can enter into that cave where Jesus was believed to have slept And you can imagine what it must have been like. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, being all alone. And there he was in the wilderness. Now the wilderness is oftentimes a metaphor for those places that we don't want to go. And those times in our lives when when something difficult happens and and life seems barren and the road seems hard and we seem to be we seem to be wrestling as if we are wrestling with evil itself. Now, Jesus was not the only one to spend time in the wilderness. In fact, Elijah fled to the wilderness when Queen Jezebel sought to kill him. David fled from Saul and lived amongst the caves. That's where he wrote many of the Psalms. It was Moses who lived those long years as a fugitive from Pharaoh's hand, wandering in the wilderness of Sinai. In all of those All of those, along with Jesus, have one thing in common, and that is that God met each of them in that place, that God was with them in the wilderness, and what is true for them is true for us, that in those moments when we find ourselves in the wilderness of our lives, feeling hopeless and alone, that God is there. If we have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, if our hearts and our minds are open, we can know in that moment that God is there to strengthen, to sanctify us. And that time for Jesus was that time of sanctification, of strength. And we read that for 40 days he was tempted. And the other gospels are more elaborate and say more about more detail, more specificity in what it was that was tempting him. But those temptations serve as a test for him. Those temptations serve as a test. Now, when my children were younger, they would have spelling tests every Friday. Now, those of you who have children, who have had children, who are children, maybe you have had these similar spelling tests every Friday. And if so, you know that that meant that every Thursday evening and every Friday morning was a time of great anxiety and stress and worry. Am I right? But what I always tried to remember, what I always tried to remind my kids, that those teachers give those tests not to try and break you, but to strengthen you. Not to try and test you or to trip you up, but to make you stronger, to prepare you for what would come next in life. And so it is with Jesus, that this was a time of testing, 
The Greek word there for that temptation is parazo, and it's often translated as testing. Jesus was being tempted, but more importantly, he was being made stronger so that when his ministry, when he faced adversity, when he faced success, that he would remain strong in that moment, steadfast in his mission. As said, the other accounts are more elaborate. Those temptations by Satan, by the devil. Now, I want to talk just briefly about the personification of evil, the devil. Because the truth is, we don't talk much about that in mainline churches. But here's what I want to say. That when I think of this person, this personification of evil, I don't see a man in red tights carrying a pitchfork. That's not what I understand the personification of evil to be. For me, me in my life, it's as if I hear a whisper, a whisper to do something that I have no business doing. He personifies this inner spiritual struggle that we all face. I would argue that we've all wrestled with the devil in some way, shape, or form, and I don't know what your temptations are, if it's food or fidelity. Sometimes we are tested to do the things to, in, in order to, to gain success or money or power. But here's what I've come to discover in my life is that the biggest temptations are not to do something that I know that I shouldn't, but are more often the temptation to not do the things that I should. We all have those moments when we wrestle. And during those moments, God speaks to us. And sometimes it's through scripture and sometimes it's through other people and sometimes it's through that still small voice that is the voice of God. But yet, but yet oftentimes that whisper from the personification of evil, that whisper, that still small voice, oftentimes they sound very similar. So for us, the spiritual path is being able to gain the strength and the knowledge and the understanding so that we can discern right from wrong which voice it is that is calling us to do and to be. You see, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness were meant to strengthen his resolve, not weaken him, but to make him stronger. And when we fast, when we pray, when we stare down our own temptations, we find that it is the same for us, that we get stronger that we find a resilience, a peace, and a strength. You see, I would argue that it's comforting, comforting to know that Jesus, too, felt the power of those same temptations. And that as the author of the book of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested just as we are, yet remains without sin, And so let us, therefore, approach the throne of grace with a boldness so that we may receive the mercy and grace and find the grace to help us in times of need. In other words, he's been there. He gets us. He's not sitting in the back of the room. I'm just here to drive the bus. He's with us. And so in those moments, as we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, When we face those temptations, 
when we recognize that the way of Christ includes striving to resist temptations, we don't do so alone. For the one that we follow has been there. He gets us. He's with us. And so in these 40 days, as we seek to walk the path that Jesus walked, to be the people that God created us to be, may we find strength to discern the still small voice that calls us to follow the right way of Christ.